I've already had um, several people this weekend ask me um, why I left medicine and how that process happened. <laughs> um, I'm sure more people uh, may want to ask that. But um, I actually, I, I started to think about whether I really wanted to be a doctor when I was in my first year of clinical. I, I quite enjoyed preclinical medicine. Um, in some senses, it was quite easy for me. I was good at uh, sciences and doing all that basic medicine. And then the first time I went on the wards, I found it a very discouraging experience, actually. I found it very impersonal, swapping rotations every uh, you know, six weeks or eight weeks, whatever it was, just feeling like you're getting used to something and then they move you on. I'm, I'm sure I was talking to someone who's doing uh, four months of a rotation at the moment and you know, probably by four months you just feel like you know what you're doing, don't you? And then you swap and a whole new team, a whole new job. Uh, I found the teaching hospital, the consultants, the professors, not really interested in the students and um, not the kind of doctor that I envisaged doctors being and who I wanted to be. And I began to think, maybe this isn't for me. So uh, I thought, what could I do? I thought, I better get something out of three years. So I uh, looked around and I saw that you could do a intercalated BSc in sociology where, um, in, where I was. And I thought, that sounds quite interesting. And one of the courses was in philosophy of science and social science, which sounded very interesting. And um, predictably, when I, when I did do that course, the teacher had sandals and socks and a large <laughs> cup of coffee. <laughs> and we sat in a circle and, and discussed important things. <laughs> and it was wonderful. And uh, what a good year that was. But life is often like that, isn't it? It, it is full of disappointments. Um, the story goes wrong. You know, we lose our way in life. And what we thought and our expectations of the way things would be don't turn out that way. I remember becoming, uh, when I first became a doctor, uh, my first job, I was really excited about it. I was just telling someone at breakfast because they were working at the hospital where I, I did my first job. But my SHO and my registrar were um, absolutely at loggerheads for the whole six months and they would have stand-up rows in front of patients in the middle of the casualty department. And uh, it was a very, very stressful environment to work in. And in a way, I think that, that our lives often echo the big story and what we're going to talk about today, which is that things start well, don't they? There is a story, there is a beginning, but then we lose our way and things go wrong. And that's what we're going to think about today. We're going to think about the fall. If you're American, that doesn't mean the autumn, but it means the fall, I guess, from the grace of God or from his big story losing our way. So if you remember, uh, yesterday we talked about the goodness of creation, didn't we, in these three acts of creation, the creation of the raw material, the six days where God forms and fills, and then the seventh day that he invites us to be co-creators with him, the unfolding of human civilization and history. And there, our small stories, our individual lives find their significance because we are building 
His kingdom, we're building eternity. That's the way God made us to be. But then a a catastrophic event happens, which is described in Genesis 3. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with that story. But I decided to read from the Romans passage, which is really talking about the same events. And it's it's one of the verses that I'll, I'll pick out is verse 21, where it says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. I don't know if you, you know what the word glory means or, or it has a sense. It's quite an abstract word, isn't it? The Hebrew is actually a very earthy word. And glory means weightiness. It means profoundness, depth, reality, something like that. So it's saying really that Adam and Eve didn't give God the reality that was due to him as the creator, nor did they receive the creation with thankfulness. And remember, we we ended last night by thinking about the discipline and sense of thankfulness as being something that, that really connects us to the goodness of his creation. But they didn't receive it with thankfulness. Um, but instead, they rejected their creatureliness and the goodness of creation and wanted to be creators of a different reality or of a different story. Adam and Eve weren't content to be sub-creators and co-creators, but wanted to be the authors, not just of the micro-reality, but of the macro-reality, to define good and evil for themselves. And I think that's what that tree symbolizes as well, the, the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, that they wanted to define good and evil, which is the macro-reality level for themselves an attempt to be the authors of the big story. It's interesting, isn't it, in the story, when you think about it, that that the source of of this moving away from God comes from outside Adam and Eve and outside the earth, in a sense, the material creation, isn't it? Satan comes in and tempts them, which I think also really emphasizes that there is nothing wrong with God's creation, All other kind of worldviews have an idea that there's something wrong with it, but that there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with being human. Do you see that? It's not a fault in being human, but temptation comes from outside and leads Adam and Eve astray through their choice. And this has several effects, which as you read through Genesis, the rest of the book of Genesis and the Bible, you'll see kind of played out. But um, one of the effects it does is that it immediately makes human life a fight for power. Because if there's no big story, no big story over us, which we participate in, then life is just all about our little stories. And life then becomes a fight between whose little story comes first and has precedent over whose. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve begin to experience. The uh, existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre said, said this about life. He said, we are all masochists or sadists or indifferent. He thought that was the only way human relationships ever worked. You either let people have power over you or you had power over others or you became indifferent to human relationships. And that, that was the way he saw that life was. And I think when actually he's observing fallen human life, he's right, isn't he? That, that is what life is often about. I'm sure you experience that every day on the wards, don't you? Power dynamics. Who has power over who? 
And that happens in the church as well very often, the dynamics of power. So that, that's one of them. But the other, the other um, consequence, which is in a sense deeper, is that we cut ourselves off from the source of life. Do you, do you remember yesterday we were thinking about how there's a dynamic of life? So where, where does life start? It's a real question. You can have where does life start? With God. Great. Life starts with the, the Trinity, doesn't it? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who share the life and the love of one, with one another and grow and exponentially as they do that. And then where does it go from that life? God breathes out his life. He is spirit. He breathes out life into us, yeah, into his creation, into us. And we then, as spiritual beings, breathe out life, don't we, to one another. So there's a dynamic. But the question then comes, if you cut yourself off from God... What are you doing? You're cutting yourself off from the one whom you receive life from. So then you are left with a question of where do you get life from? Where do you get, if you like, yeah, the energy, the life that you need from? Where do you think you get it from? Sorry? Fallen land, yeah, yeah. You can use the land, yeah. What do we use to give us a sense, give ourselves a sense of life? Money, yes, money's one thing, great, yep. Other people, good, yep. Work, yeah, yeah. Power, yeah, yeah. Status, authority. If you think about it, probably you can use anything in the creation to try and give yourself a sense of life to fill yourself. And that's what verse 23 says in Romans. I think this is the thrust of it, isn't it? They exchanged the glory of God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. I think that's what an idol is. An idol is something within the creation that we look to give us what only God can give us. That's actually what an idol is. Uh, there are some things within creation that meet our needs that actually God has put there to meet our needs. So uh, John says, you know, if your neighbor needs a cloak, don't say, God bless you, give them a cloak. Okay? When you need food, you need food. You know, um, someone's starving. In a sense, they don't need God at that moment, they need food. Obviously, ultimately, they need God. But there are certain things that we have to look to God for. Uh, our identity, for meaning and purpose, for security. Those would be some of the things you, you could think about them all. But idols are things that replace particularly those things in our lives. So let's think about this. If to be spiritual is to breathe out life, what is the opposite of spiritual, okay, is not material or natural. The opposite of spiritual, I think, is sin, and what is sin? What do we do when we sin? If you think to be spiritual is to breathe out life, what is sin? Sin is when we take away life. Take away life. Yeah, good. Inhale. inhale, yeah, when we inhale life, when we suck life out of other people and things to give ourselves life. Or sin is when we consume 
other people and other things to give ourselves life. And I think that's immediately what begins to happen in the Bible. You think of the story of Cain and Abel as they make their sacrifices to God. Cain feels um, his sacrifice isn't, isn't good enough. Um, and his response to that is not to sort it out with God, but to take literally his brother's life to make himself feel better about it. Life would be better without you being there. So we use everything, I think, and anything within creation, all the good things of creation to give ourselves a sense of life. But when we do this, all these things become distorted and misshaped. They become warped and twisted and perverted. So let's think a little bit about some examples of that. So all the good things of creation become distorted. So we thought about words, didn't we? We thought about words yesterday, the way that we can use words to give life. And we thought about things like truth, didn't we? Encouragement. Um, challenge in the right way, that kind of thing. But you can also use words to take life from others, to give, take from other people and give yourself a sense of life and of power and those kind of things. How do we do that? How do we use words to take life from other people? Putting people down. Putting people down, yeah, yeah. When you put someone down, what does it do to you? You feel higher, higher better, yeah. Yeah, when you lie, yeah, I think when you lie, you take life in various ways, yeah. Yeah, I, I, as I tutor people at Libri, I meet many people who have been lied to, um, and particularly when reality is distorted and when you're told that good things are bad and bad things are good. In some families, that happens a lot. It's, it's a severe distortion. It takes a long time to sort out. Yeah, so when we lie, what else? Gossiping, yeah, yeah, that gives you a sense of, yeah, it's often that kind of puts down someone, doesn't it? It gives you a sense of importance, knowledge, and centre of things. Violence. Violence. Right, yeah, violent words, maybe, yeah, violent, if we think about it, but violent words or incitement to violence, yeah, it's, um, you know, that, that's, that's part of using words to take life, isn't it? Pride, did you say? Pride, yeah, proud, 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 yeah, using our words in pride. So you can think about this gift of God, okay? We're just thinking here about language, language and words. You can use them to bless and give life, can't you? Or you can use them to take life from others. And, you know, you think of kids in playgrounds. They learn very quickly, don't they, how to put other people down, you know, little rhymes. Jim, Jim, very dim. Nothing will become of him. <laughs> oh. It's sad, isn't it? It's so... <laughs> Jim, Jim, very dim. No one wants to play with him. <laughs> These things happen to us, but they're, you know, they're ways that children very quickly learn. If I put someone else down, I feel bigger. I feel better. I feel better about myself. And it's, of course, usually the children who feel empty, isn't it, that, that are the ones that do that the most. Creativity, we could look at creativity. What, what do you think the purpose of creativity is in giving life, breathing out life? What's the, what's the purpose of creativity? Yeah, expand borders, good, yeah. yeah. When, you, when you're creative, you, you actually bring something kind of new into being, don't you? Yeah, it's expanding borders, good. 
someone else said something else here. Sorry, to make to make things more beautiful. Yeah, that's an expression of creativity, isn't it? Yeah, beauty is is great. Beauty is part of God's creation. It's um, it speaks of God. So something that's beautiful in itself is spiritual. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Great creative solutions to things. Yeah. Yeah. Creativity, it, it expands our understanding of things, doesn't it? I think it's T.S. Eliot, he said, the job is of the poet is to say, look at this, it's like that. And then when you say that, look at this, it's like that, you understand this better. And, and it becomes more glorious to you. So that's, okay. How can you use creativity to take life from others? To consume life? Graffiti? Okay. <laughs> I quite like some graffiti. But <laughs> Banksy, yeah. Yeah, but I suppose you could say, yeah, it, it can... Okay, but yeah, think that makes things ugly, maybe, and destroys, and yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. Right, introducing comparisons, okay, creatively, yeah, okay, yeah. We can use creativity to do things like that, yeah, to... Negative propaganda? Right. Yeah. Yeah, if, when you think about it, yeah, a lot of propaganda uh, is very creative, isn't it? Hitler's Mein Kampf was a work of creativity. It was a book that didn't exist and he brought it into being and it destroyed, almost destroyed the Western world. You know, so creativity can be used in both ways, can't it? It can be used to breathe out life, can be used to take life. So everything, right, everything in creation, all God's gifts now become a battleground between giving out life and, and, and consuming life. Sex, you know, sex is God's gift. It's a wonderful thing. But it can be distorted and used in all kinds of ways where it becomes about taking life and about me and about just my wants and you don't matter at all. So we see that this event happen it's a cosmic event. Just as creation is cosmic, the fall actually is cosmic. It affects all aspects of human life. Even the things that we label spiritual can become distorted. You think about prayer. In the, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about prayer. But he talks about, if you like, um, sinful prayer or distorted prayer. Do you know, what does he say about prayer when prayer becomes sinful or distorted? He gives two instances just before he talks, gives, the, gives the Lord's Prayer. What does he say? When you pray, don't. Don't, sorry. Don't be like the hypocrites. Yeah, don't stand on the street corners, doesn't he? And pray so that everyone can see. Because when you do that, you are actually consuming the praise of others. It's about you. It's about trying to receive life from the praise of others. But he says, go quietly you know, into your room and pray. And your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. We'll come back to the God who sees what we do in secret. So that's good. And the other one, he says, when you pray, don't... Don't babble on like the pagans who think that by their words, God will do what they want. So don't use prayer as magic. It's not magic. It's not magic words. If I use the right words, God's more likely to do 
what I think. It's not. It's a relationship of a God who loves you and listens to you and even knows what you want before you even utter it. So you can just use simple words or even just moan. I mean, moan isn't groan. I should have said groan. Sorry, not moan. <laughs> we can talk about moaning later. Yeah. Do you, do you see that? So even things that, you know, we would label, oh, prayer is spiritual. No, you know, prayer can be used to give life or to consume life. Bible teaching, okay, preaching. A good use of preaching isn't it? Is, is to preach the truth, to encourage people to build them up. And what would sinful preaching be? Yeah, to glorify yourself. Yeah. Yes, to have power over others. Condemning. Condemning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just condemning, whipping people into feeling bad about themselves and so they do what you want or whatever it is. Yeah, so you, can you see that? Okay, can you see? So the fault line, if you like, between the spiritual and the sinful, okay, so spiritual is breathing out life, sinful is consuming life, runs through every human activity doesn't it it runs through every even what we label spiritual and of course this affects as well it's cosmic effect it 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 is a moral thing but it also affects our minds our imagination our words our emotions our relationships and our bodies Um, and ultimately what happens is because we are cut off from the source of life we will die and, and that's what God tells them. When, if you do this, you will die because you're cut off from the source of life. It affects the whole of human civilization and a new dynamic enters. Everything good, every good thing and possibility can be misused. And it's also important to note the central place of humanity in the fall and actually, that's, that's a theme I want to talk about each, in each talk, is the central place of humanity. If you, do you remember in the, in the creation, there's the central place of humanity in the third act of creation, the third movement of creation. We are central to God's plan to rule over the earth and make the earth heavenly. And so we are, if you like, central to Satan's plan to distort and to disrupt and to try to thwart that. So much of Satan's power is largely mediated through humanity. An event has happened in the human heart which has cosmic repercussions for the whole of creation and human civilization. So that's worth... But it's also worth noting at this point that the fall doesn't obliterate or negate the original goodness of God's creation. And that is very important because certain Christian denominations or, or, or theology at times have, have kind of said that, that you know, there's nothing good left. It doesn't totally obliterate the original goodness, nor does it obliterate the image of God in human beings. Okay? And that is why non-Christians and people that don't know God can still do good things and still create wonderful things because they are still made in the image of God. It, the fall dis- displaces or defaces rather, distorts and twists things, but it never totally destroys them. And neither does it introduce anything new into creation. That's very interesting when you begin to think about it. sin is a parasite, it is not something that is, exists kind of in itself. 
It doesn't have an ontology, if you like, of its own, a being of its own. But it introduces a new axis. I like the way, um, this is the book that my talks are based on, that's inspired them, called Creation Regained. Uh, someone that's just on the end there, hold up, there's a different copy of it over there with a much nicer cover than my boring white cover here, older edition. There you go. Lovely. Creation Regained by Al Walters. I'd recommend it if, if you want to get more into the ideas. I think it gives a really good picture here. I'll just read a paragraph, half a paragraph for you. He says, earthly creation preceding the fall, the events recorded in Genesis 3, is like a healthy newborn child. In every respect, it can be pronounced very good. But this doesn't mean that change is not required. There is something seriously wrong if the baby remains in its infancy. It is meant to grow, develop, mature into adulthood. So that, that's the third act of creation. Do you see that? You know, if you like, God make, makes the baby, that's up to the end of Genesis 2. And then he commissions, or at Genesis 1 rather, he commissions you know, this, this ongoing creation, the maturing Suppose now that while the child is still an infant, it contracts a serious chronic disease for which there is no known cure and that it grows up an invalid, the disease wasting its body away. It is clear that there are two clearly distinguishable processes going on in its body as it approaches adolescence. One is the process of maturation and growth which continues in spite of the sickness and which is natural, normal, and good. The other is the progress of the disease, which distorts and impairs the healthy functioning of the body. That's quite a good, if you get that, it's quite a good picture, isn't it, of what's going on at the moment in a sense. There is, you know, there is still maturation going on, growth and goodness but there is also distortion isn't it there there is there's twisting there's the disease which impairs and stops in very very profound ways so the whole of creation is a battleground between these two processes and right in the middle of the fight is humanity is you and me and in a sense the battleground is for the human heart so um, a, a good way of looking at this is introduce the idea of structure and direction. Adrian, is there a, have I got a slide on structure and direction? Oh, there we go. Okay, good. Uh, sorry, the arrows, the arrows are pathetically small, but they are supposed to be going one that way, one that way. Okay. <laughs> sorry, failed with my PowerPoint skills at that moment. Okay. <laughs> okay. But you can see the general idea, can't you? You have creation which is structure, okay? God's original goodness, his intention, his uh, pattern that he's put in. And then the direction, which can either be towards God's loving and good intentions for his creation as it unfolds or against them and to the distortion and the thwarting of those good intentions. One is blessing. Blessing means, the Hebrew for blessing is to mean to increase, to deepen, to thicken, to become more profound and more real. To curse is to dis diminish and distort and reduce and become less real and less profound. So the same creational structures can be taken in either direction. We thought, you know, something like sex. It's, it is good. It's the gift of God. It's part of his creation. 
Um, but it also can be used in all kinds of distorted ways that diminish. Authority, something like authority, is a good thing. Uh, for parents to exercise authority, authority is the power to put boundaries in good places. That's what authority is. But authority is horribly misused, isn't it? I'm sure some of you have been the victims of that in, in your jobs and uh, in, in the healthcare service. The mistake we can make as Christians often is that we confuse structure with direction. So often what we do is rather than saying this, the practice in this area of life is wrong, we actually say this area of life is wrong. And the church keeps on doing that because it seems to be an easy answer. If we can declare this part of life wrong, if we just get rid of it, then everything will be okay. Okay? Not only the church, but I would say all kinds of philosophies and um, uh, uh, social theories are always saying that. So you could think of the med- medieval monastics often said, well, sex is the problem. If we just get rid of sex, everything will be okay and everything will be spiritual again. Or you think of anarchists, the actual proper kind of political movement of anarchism, anarchy is to say authority is the problem. If we can only have a life, a world without authority structures, everything will be all right. But the problem is not sex and authority, it's actually the direction in which those are used. Do you see that? Yeah, yeah. And various denominations, you know, if you're Southern Baptist, if we just get rid of dancing, everything will be all right. The Bible tells us that the problem lies in the human heart. The fault line runs through every human activity because it runs through the human heart. The writer Solzhenitsyn says this, it's a a brilliant quote. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the... But the, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So he puts it profoundly there, doesn't he? The line between good and evil runs through the heart of every human being. Let's think about the implications of the fall for medicine and just think about how do you think the fall affects medicine? You might like to think about the the practice of medicine and what medicine is. You might like to think how it affects your experience of being a doctor, the people you work with, things like that. Let, let's think about that, okay? There we go, good. Uh, down here, yeah, wait, till we got, sorry, got to get the microphone because it'll record, apparently, for the recording. Fine. It's given most of us a job. Yeah, yeah, okay. At a basic level. Yeah, at a basic level. It's an interesting thing, actually. We were talking about that little group of us at the end of uh, yesterday's talk, that actually medicine becomes a much bigger thing because of the fall. I think actually there'd probably be a lot less of you in the room if this CMF would be a lot smaller as an organisation if, uh, if there wasn't a fall. But it's true, isn't it? Actually sickness doesn't, becomes a much bigger part of our lives and therefore there's a much deeper need, isn't there, for healing and, and, and the relief of, of sickness and illness. So thank you. Yeah, that's a good, good point. Yeah, somebody else. This one, yeah, up here and then. Okay. I just felt in our conversation there was an overriding feeling of fear. Right. In medicine. 
our patients fear, we as doctors fear, yeah, yeah. we fear the structures that we are part of because they are not necessarily compassionate to us as right. doctors. Patients' right. families fear, mm. we fear the future because we don't mm. know where bacteria are yeah. morphing and changing into. So right. in every way we have lost that trust and that peace yeah. in our Creator God. And each one of us is working mm. through and cycling through fear mm. and we have to face our own um, mortality yeah. as well. Yeah. As we go through that and mm. seeing so much fear in other people's eyes mm. and difficulty and struggle and pain. Yeah. Um, and that goes for every one of us as practitioners mm. and also as our patients. Great, thank you. Yeah. The opposite, it's interesting, the opposite of rest in the Bible isn't work, is it? I think the opposite of rest is anxiety or fear yeah, and not, not being able to rest. And I think that's very, very profound what you've just mentioned, isn't it? Is that I, I wanted to say today how, as medics, you have to face the reality of the fall that other people can avoid, aren't they, very much? So you have to face illness and sickness and death every day. Uh, which, um, yeah, which a lot of people can avoid. I, I worked in hospice work in palliative care. I remember working on, on um, I worked at St. Joseph's Hospice in, in the East End, and uh, people that worked there for a long time told me how, you know, a lot of the local people would literally cross the road as they passed the hospice onto the other side of the road, didn't want to look at it at all or think about, you know, that, that part of life. And that was a... And I, I think that's true, isn't it? And, and so there is a burden. Yeah, I, I think there's a deep burden. Uh, I was um, thinking about how Jesus wept when uh, Lazarus had died. And even though you could say he knew God had the power to raise Lazarus, he wept, didn't he, at the um, in compassion for the pain and grief of Mary and Martha and, and for death, for suffering and sin and death. And, and uh, so you are, yeah, you are having to bear that. That is a burden. That's a reality. It's not nothing. Um, good. Thank you. Yeah, let, there's somebody. Um, sorry, Chris, just behind you first. Sorry. And then. Uh, um, we were talking about how it can be quite self-centered, that it's yeah. not about God and it's not about the good things about helping others. Actually, it can yeah. be about how can I get through this quickly? How can this help my career? <laughs> yeah. Um, how can I win out over my team? Um, yeah. And it's, we, we f- can move easily, easily in um, our teams move away mm. from putting God in, at the front and, and looking after people and helping people in a good way and a genuinely yeah. uh, creative yeah, fashion. Yeah, we lose that. Thank you. Yeah, I'll say a m- bit more about that. But you're, you're kind of touching on the area, aren't you, of the idols within medicine and in ourselves. Yeah, there's some, someone, you wanted to say something down here and then we'll go to Chris and then maybe we'll have one more over this side who wants to say something over this side put your hand up yeah yeah Um, it's quite similar to what was just said actually but Pablo and I were just talking about um in research as well how it can start off with good intentions um trying to improve the not you know to Mm -hmm. uh, um increase knowledge and try and treat uh, Mm. illnesses better but then it can become very me-centered about my me being acknowledged me um, Mm. making a name for myself or um uh getting as much funding as possible Mm. and things like that it can become very sinful Mm. great yeah yeah thank you very much so yeah i a friend of mine does an exercise where he says he gets you to imagine if the fall had never happened what something like you know you think of medical research would be like (laughs) And you think of the way I, I've, my best friend is in, in medical research and, um, 
how he has to protect what he's doing from others because he has had people steal his ideas. And, um, and you think, you know, when you're in that environment where you can't share something creatively, it, it really limits, you know, if the fall hadn't happened, you think how much further we would be on in our understanding research. Thanks. Let's go to Chris and then, and then over here and then we'll... I'll say a few more things, but thanks. I'm sure there's many, she many good things. She already said it, but, um, yeah, and I just wanted to say about the selfishness in healing, yeah. like you're saying. And yeah. you know how we talk about patient-centered care yeah. in medical school and, like, right. that's the whole the buzzword. Yeah. Like, instead of patient-centered care being about exhaling and breathing life in the patient, mm. it's more about what we can get out of their case. So right. they've, they're a new case. Let's go yeah. and see them so that yeah. I can learn how to be what a better doctor learn. for myself yeah. Yeah. rather than for them. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Yeah, it becomes. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Very selfish. And that. Yeah, there's one just in the in the middle here, um, or two in here. You know, these are all good. Uh, so I was just thinking about quite heavy-handed care, which actually de-skills people and right. really miniaturise their life in some yeah. cases. Like you end up with somebody who no longer works because they've become so defined by their condition, and actually surrounded right. by people who feel by loading on loads and loads mm. of care mm. they're making their life better but actually you end up with somebody with a very empty life where they are just yeah. a disease and yeah. they end yeah. up a lot of self-loathing and not living life to all its fullest. Yeah, yeah. so you can look at I, think, I guess what you're getting at is the theme isn't it of kind of the, it can actually, medicine can dehumanise can't it, dehumanise people turn them into yeah, the liver in bed three or whatever it is <laughs> you know, um, we label people but we, um, it, it can dehumanise you. I think quite a lot of you are probably dehumanised, stuck in systems that are very, you know, impersonal. One of the greatest gifts, actually, we can give, I, I think we'll talk about it this afternoon, is, is rehumanising, because that is breathing out life, isn't it? It's encouraging people in their, in their God-given humanness. Thank you. Great. Is there one more? And then, have you got, no? Okay, oh, there's one more here. Let's I'd take one more here, and then we'll... I'll say a few closing words. Um, we were talking a bit about the hierarchy of the system and yeah. how that can become just huge amounts of pride and pushing other people down, nurses versus doctors, etc. Yeah. And I guess it's the fact that you feel as a junior doctor, you've been imposed upon, you've had a lot of people sucking your life out. So then when you get senior, you then suck life out of other people because you almost you start feeling that you deserve it because you've been through this system yourself yeah great thank you yeah yeah that's the kind of misuse isn't it authority power yeah the structures and when you get there yeah you think i deserve it don't you i deserve that so yeah thank you there's there's more things i think it's it's really interesting isn't it you begin to think about the impact of the fall in all kinds of different areas and in ourselves um we thought about how, uh, yeah, medicine itself, in a sense, it becomes a much bigger thing in our lives. And, and, and actually, we'll look to this afternoon at how medicine is a response to the fall, isn't it, as well, the expansion of medicine. But, uh, yeah, you have to bear the suffering. But also maybe, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of you, I've already talked to a few people, a lot of people who said they're stressed and, and um, finding things difficult, is... Um, you know, we suffer as well, don't we, as part of the fall. It's not just outside there in what we're doing. It's inside in us. Um, some of you here, I know, probably suffer profound wounds of the past. 
many of us bear sicknesses and illnesses in the present and grief and, you know, stressful jobs. Um, it's often very difficult. I, I would encourage you, one of the things I want to say today, it's very difficult for medics to admit that they need help. Um, you're supposed to be the ones with all the answers and um, the ones that care and cope. But I'm sure there are some of you, if not many, I would say many of you probably who are under the cosh and finding things difficult on the edge. Um, a, a very close, um, uh, someone very close to me tried to commit suicide who's a doctor um, because they felt they weren't coping with their job and uh, almost killed themselves. It happened last year. And uh, what struck me about that was, was um, the sense in which they felt they should be coping. They should be able to do this. They shouldn't, um, they, they, they shouldn't be this way. I, I don't really encourage you, if you're in that place now, really come and talk to somebody and um, share, because... I mean, it was, a, yeah, it was a terrible thing and a very lonely thing. And uh, I, I felt afterwards I wanted to say, I did say to that person, you don't have to be lonely, you can share it. So, so do come and talk to people. We've got time to pray, haven't we, after this? And um, there will be other people around that maybe you can meet and pray with. But the fall affects medicine yeah, very deeply as it does all of human life. Peter Saunders doesn't say many words of wisdom, but I remember one of the words of wisdom that he said to me before I did my first house officer job. Peter said to me, I don't know if you remember this. Where is he? He's not here. He's here. Yeah, he said to me, you will see every sin possible when you start work in, in, the, in the hospital. And he was absolutely right. I remember that, as I, as I told you, my, my house officer and registrar had stand-up rows in the middle of casualty with the patient kind of lying in VF on the, <laughs> on the table. Uh, not quite that bad, but... Um, so, um, yeah, you will see every sin. And, of course, many of those uh, get us wrapped up, and we've talked about the subject of idols. And I, I was thinking about how, how medicine very profoundly forms many idols in our lives, doesn't it? The idol of identity. Uh, when I began to think about this, I stopped saying I am a doctor and I started saying to people when they asked me what I did, I work as a doctor because I didn't want it to become my identity. It was quite interesting. Then, then I, once I said that, I work as a doctor and somebody said, so are you a doctor? <laughs> I was like... <laughs> I suppose that's a good question. <laughs> uh, our status, we can feel better than people, can't we? We have more knowledge and we can feel that we're better than other people. Um, it can become the most important thing about what we do. Meaning, the way that medicine can give meaning to our lives. It can become, remember, meaning is the connection between things. It can become our ultimate connection, can't it? That we are the carer the one who others look to, the solver of problems. Many doctors have a saviour complex that, you know, I'm the one who can sort out people's problems. The meaning of the career ladder. Uh, my best friend told me he was, when he was a 
SHO or something talking to his his consultant and his consultant you know said you know when I was when I was a preclinical medical student I just wanted to be a clinical medical student when I was a clinical medical student I wanted to be a junior doctor you know when I was a junior doctor I wanted to be the reg when I was the reg I wanted to be the consultant when I was a consultant I wanted to be the professor now I'm the professor and I'm more depressed than I've ever been in my life you know life is not about a career ladder okay no I work with the dying. I, th- I tell you, life is profoundly about enjoying where you are, actually. It is. It's profoundly about enjoying where you are. Ecclesiastes would tell you that if you read the book, isn't it? Enjoy the food and the drink and the wife of your youth and, you know, the good gifts of God and, and being in the moment. Security or power is what an idol for medicine. With knowledge comes power, power to control power to solve every problem in medicine and the medical model is salvation it's not everyone will die in the end i hate to tell you that i worked in palliative care so it was it was very true in a more imminent sense but um you know i've just read has anyone read uh, paul kalanithi's when breath becomes air have you read that yeah I don't know quite what to make of that book, and I don't want to, but, but one of the things that struck me is how when he was dying, he was still trying to control his medical treatment. And his oncologist, literally on his deathbed, said, I think it's time to let go. Um, that struck me profoundly. And I, I think, you know, a lot of us can be in that place, can't we, where medicine is the ultimate answer to everything. So those, those, those are the things. Cynicism, another idol. Uh, do, do people still read the book The House of God? Do you know that medical book? Yeah, some people okay, read that. The fat man is the ultimate, isn't he? He's the ultimate cynic. He, he calls old people gomers. Get out of my emergency room. That's his, his cynicism. Cynicism is when we only see the bad. And it's easy to become cynical in the NHS, which has a lot of systemic sin in it, like all systems. Um, it's a protective response, cynicism to pain and hurt. I think in the end, like in all, all through all this, the, these ways of distortion that I've talked about, we lose sight of the big story, don't we? And it becomes about my story. Ultimately, without the big story, though, I think our stories become unattached and super, superficial and, and banal. I love the word banal. Banal means, means with reduced meaning. Things become banal. They have less meaning. I think that's what that, that, that person found. He said, you know, when I was a house officer, I wanted to be an SHO. When I was an SHO, they found that, that in the end, you know, their story getting to the top actually didn't have meaning. It had very little meaning. So may, maybe you've lost your way. Maybe you've wandered off from the big story down side alleys. Um, maybe you've lost what God is doing in the big story and, and how your life connects with that. And maybe we've become lost yeah, for very um, understandable reasons in pain and hurt, disappointment, uh, and, and the pain of living in a fallen world. So the big story, creation fall, as we've done it, is our story too, isn't it? Every one of us, actually. And that, that, that's the biblical story. All of us have wandered off. I have wandered off. Um, all of us think we can do it on our own. We know better than God. But the story doesn't end there. And I don't want to say too much about um, what we're going to talk about this afternoon. But 
One of the things that always gives me a lot of hope is at the moment that Adam and Eve turn away from God, there is the first moment of apologetics, and it's a movement of God back towards them. Because do you remember in the Garden of Eden, the moment that they turn away from him and they hide, God comes looking for them which is a really wonderful thing, isn't it? And he comes looking for them with questions. He, he says, where are you? We, we've got a bit of prayer time now. Sorry, I'm eating into it, so I must stop. But, you know, it's a good time now just to take stock and think, where am I? Where am I? Do I have those idols in my life? Am I burnt out and tired and I need to actually ask people for help and, and uh, need some comfort um, am I getting lost in my own story? Am I, um, yeah, where, where am I? And then, and then he says, who told you those things? It's a really good question, he asks Eve. Interesting. Who told you that doctors don't need help? Who told you that the whole of your life has to be a success? Who told you it's not okay to fail? When, when I was a medical student, we, put, we did a See You Talk just before the exams, called Failure is Good for You. <laughs> I think that's one of the best, best titles we put up, the best moments. Who told you that? And then what have you done? What have you done, he asks, a call to just take stock and responsibility. So if, if we thought about um, the, the response of creation is thanksgiving, I th- what is the response to the fall? The response to the fall, I, I think, is tears, and two types of tears. One is lamentation, tears of lament. And uh, we were talking about, I was talking with someone about complaining, and we were just saying, actually, that in some ways, it, it's okay to complain to God. That's lament is, and the Bible is full of it, Psalms, Book of Lamentation, Job, Jeremiah, etc. But yeah, there is a lament, isn't it? For the brokenness of the world, for our own brokenness. Jesus shed tears. The Bible is full of lament. Um, and longing for healing, bringing those lamentations to the Lord. Also tears of repentance. I think we, we have to acknowledge that the problem isn't just outside, but as Solzhenitsyn says, it runs in our heart too. Tears for the idols, tears where we've lost the big story. But the good news is that God comes to us. The fall isn't the end, isn't it? The Bible doesn't stop at the end of Genesis 3. But it says, you know, God came looking. He came looking for them and he said, where are you? Who told you that? And what is this that you've done? But all the time we're going to see as we look at redemption this afternoon, the whole story of the rest of the Bible is about God coming looking for us, which, which is really a cause for great hope. So let, let's just finish. Let's, let's just bow our heads, just quiet in our hearts and pray a moment. Let's pray. Father, we uh, come before you with tears. Uh, We, as medics, see the effects of the fall all around us in suffering and illness and death and loss and grief. And we bear and sense those, uh, those things every day. We also bear the effects of the fall in our own heart and the distortion of our desires and the ways we hurt others, and the ways we have been hurt by others. So we bring these tears to you, and we thank you that uh, 
it's not the end of the story. We, we thank you that Jesus wept. We think, but he also raised Lazarus from the dead. And there is a story. We thank you that you are looking for us right now in this room if we've lost our way um, with open arms like the father in the story of the prodigal son. So we thank you for that and we pray that we will yeah, come into your arms and receive the life that you long to give us. Amen.